The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. I hope everyone is having a great day before we even get started. I have to shout out a special hello to Yoshiko Dart, uh, my hero, of course, her husband, Justin, is a legend in the disability community. But Yoshiko, we love you and thank you for all you are doing to help young people living with disabilities. Well, as you all know, at the beginning of every show over the past two months, we have a guest on that gives us an update on what's going on with the UN Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities because we want to see it happen. We want this to be a reality. Um, So today, our guest is Wayman Johnson, and he joined the Society of the National Board of Directors for the MS Society. And, Wayman, are you in a position there now uh, with MS Society? Uh, yes, Joyce, and thank you for uh, welcoming us to the show. Yeah, I, I chaired the National MS Society here in the U.S. Uh, for four years uh, earlier in this century, and I'm, I'm now the uh, the chair and the president of the Multiple Sclerosis International Federation. So both of these organizations, which advocate for the rights of people with multiple sclerosis, both are very engaged in the the struggle to get the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities ratified by our Senate. Okay. Well, how about two things? First, if you could tell our listeners why that's so important to you. And number two, you know, sort of give us an update what's going on right now. Well, uh, the reason it's so important to me is that I spend a lot of my time advocating for the rights of people with disabilities. Uh, and as Governor Ridge said in an earlier program of yours, uh, people with disabilities don't really care which particular disability we're talking about because the UN Convention will mean a lot to people with disabilities no matter what disability they have. Uh, the, the Convention is so important to people with MS because MS is uh, a chronic disease of the central nervous system and it can truly affect person's mobility. What we were so heartened to see early in the 1990s was the United States stepping forward with the Americans with Disabilities Act and and making the world a really a different place for people affected by disabilities. We would like to see the United States do two things. First of all, show its leadership to the rest of the world by ratifying the convention. Uh, and second, to make the lives, again, of Americans themselves better uh, when they are traveling abroad or working abroad, because the United States has set the standard 
with the ADA, and we really do need to carry that forward with this convention. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of movement recently on the efforts to get ratification. I think uh, those who follow the news on this uh, know that Senator Corker has uh, suggested his, uh, uh, his inclination not to support the treaty, but we are urging uh, Senator Corker to get back with Senator Menendez and to work out the kinds of uh, uh, of RUDs, that is, reservations, understandings, and declarations, which will help this ratification uh, to be completed. And uh, as I, uh, I know we've heard on your good show before, Joyce, all of us in the disability community have to get passionate about this and have to express our passion and, frankly, our indignation about the way uh, the ratification did not occur uh, in late 2012. We've got to see this happen, and we've got to get in touch with our senators. When do you think this will go forward again? Well, if it's stalled in committee, uh, it's almost anyone's guess. But I know there is a good bit of effort going on through uh, numerous uh, numerous advocacy organizations working uh, on the on the ratification to try to get uh, uh, try to get it out of committee. Uh, right now, uh, what happened with Senator Corker's uh, statement is. Uh, uh, is disappointing, but uh, there is a lot of energy being p- put on senators to try to get this uh, worked out and worked out soon. Well, you know, last week on the show, former Congressman Tony Quello, an author of the Americans with Disabilities Act, said we need to get mad. And I know exactly what he meant. Because sometimes, you know, we sit back. I, too, am a person with a disability with epilepsy. But sometimes we sit back, and sometimes people in the disability community sit back and say, oh, I hope this happens. I believe in this. I want this to happen. But if we, and there are millions of people with disabilities, if we could get everyone on board sending letters to their senator and to Senator Corker, it would have such an impact. And that was the other thing I was going to ask you, Wayman. What what charge do you want to give to our listeners? What do you want them to do? I think all our listeners need to realize, that, yes, there are many persons, many like me and like you, who are directly affected by a disability, persons with disabilities. But all of our families, all of our friends, and all of our employers who are connected to people with disabilities, they are affected too. So we are all in this together. One thing I think we need to realize is that one thing that an elected official has to respond to is the fact that they hear from someone who is a voter. I am a person who uh, is in your state and I regularly vote, and this is how I feel about the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So if we get those numerous messages out, you're right, Joyce, everybody needs to recognize that 
everyone's voice makes a difference. And everyone can pick up the phone, everyone can write an email, everyone can send an old-fashioned letter, but we need to keep the communications going. And as Tony Coelho said on your show, yes, we need to show that we as voters are angry that the, the ratification has not happened yet. Well, I hope you all listen. DisabilityTreaty.org. It can be made easy for you. My challenge is you, you send letters to your senator, but you also barrage, and I mean send a million letters to Senator Corker. We've got to stand up. We've got to get mad. We've got to make it happen um, because together we can. And, Wayman, I want to thank you for your leadership um, and, and for taking time to call in today uh, and, you know, give that charge and that challenge, and we will listen. Thank you, Joyce. All of us protect, uh, who are affected by multiple sclerosis, we all thank you. You're welcome, um, and thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, you heard Wayman. I mean, come on, folks. We got to do something. Uh, we have with us today a guest that is a person of action and is a civil rights leader for people with disabilities and is recognized in the United States and outside of the United States. I think very highly of our guest today. He is the director for the Institute for Community Inclusion. He is a wonderful person. Uh, welcome to the show, Bill Kiernan. Thanks, Joyce. Glad to so, be on the show. Yeah, so Bill, what did you think about that? You know, I actually happened to be at the hearing when Secretary Kerry presented, and I thought he did an admirable job in re- addressing the issues uh, of the senators and the panel about the fact of the the issue of the convention is really an opportunity to reaffirm all of the things that in fact happen in the United States and it really is not a major change it's an endorsement of and an expansion of and as I was sitting there thinking you know one of the things that's really missing in uh, Senator Corker's perspective on things is almost what I would consider as a title of an opportunity lost and that's that his position is a very sort of local position. He doesn't really take into consideration the fact that if we don't endorse the convention, what's really going to happen is that we're going to be viewed as an outlier. His reaction and and others' reaction is we already have the ADA, so we don't need it. And there's lots of reasons why we don't, as the U.S., engage in those types of conventions. Well, the reality is that if, in fact, all the countries that have passed the convention now start talking about what are the opportunities for implementation, it's those countries that will have a conversation. We will, frankly, be left out of that conversation. And here are countries talking about how they can increase the opportunities and the full inclusion of persons with disabilities in many, many different ways. And here we will be having some experience with the implementation of the ADA, left out of the conversation. So in some ways, we're really not going to be able to assist countries in some very direct ways if we're not at the party. And so I think that's a lost opportunity. Now, Wayman actually hit the nail on the head, too, is, for example, persons with disabilities who travel in other countries 
won't necessarily have the benefit. In in my case, uh, in testifying in some of uh, one of the recent uh, meetings in Vienna, it was clearly pointed out. Well, what have you got to say since your country didn't vote for it? So those are some of the the things that I think are, are, are very shallow in the, in the senator's perspective, and don't take into consideration all the wonderful opportunities that we as a country could do for all persons with disabilities around the world. Never mind just in the U.S. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you that it is a lost opportunity. I, I think that is a very, very good point to make. Well, Bill, how about you now? How did you first become involved in the disability community? Well, that's a question that's asked uh, of me over uh, some years. And, and as I thought through it, I used to say, well, I was interested. I was going through school. I was getting interested in, in certain fields like in psychology and all. And the reality was that Frankly, I grew up in a household where my father, at age seven, when he was seven, had polio. And so he had some real limitations in his gait and his walking. And so I grew up in a household where, frankly, like the ADA says, disability is part of the human experience. That's what we lived as kids. It was just there. And I can remember at one point a, a friend of mine who was, when we were very young saying to me something to the effect of, your father has a disability, and I was in, enraged by it. And I turned around and I said to him, no, he doesn't have a disability. He just walks funny. And so for us, it's always been that's just disability is a part of the human experience. It's a part of the community. It's a part of something that people can use as certainly a crutch at times in the negative sense or someone as an opportunity. So I really grew up in the field of, of in the community. My parents were very activists uh, around the issues of rights and people with disabilities. But my dad was actually a fellow who um, couldn't really move up and down inclines or on, on level ground unless my brother and I were walking beside him and he would hold on to us. So that's really where it started. And then from then on in, it just became apparent to me that that the issues of inclusion of persons with disabilities is just something that has to be. Yeah. Well, no wonder this had an impact on you. Um, and you know, same thing with me, but in my case, it is what happened to me. Uh-huh. Um, and I did not know I had epilepsy. But, you know, family, you yourself, someone you know, no matter who it is, it has such an impact. I always say, give me the mother of a child with a disability and look out. Right. Well, Bill, tell us about your current position uh, at the university. Tell us what you do, how you got there, a little bit about, you know, the whole program. Sure, be glad to. Well, I actually have two positions, and let me talk talk the first one about the introduction as you introduced me is the uh, I'm the director of the Institute for Community Inclusion, which is a university-affiliated program around disabilities. And there's one USAID in every, con- in every state. And so there are really, in the U.S., there's, there's a collection of centers based at universities that look at the issues of research, training, technical assistance, model demonstration, and supports for innovation that we work as a resource in the community, in the provider network, as policy uh, development activities and as people who are really trying to look for innovation and ways for change. And the USAID network is a great network from the standpoint of if I have a question about, gee, you know, we've, we've got to develop a new training program for thus and so, I can get on the network and send out an email to all 50 states and I'll get responses from them in the day. 
Uh, and wow. So there's, there's quite a network of, of programs. Um, but our program is actually, uh, has been in existence actually since 1967. And the University Centers for Excellence in Disability were really a part of uh, the John Kennedy's legislation when, in fact, he was really unhappy about the nature of the services that were provided to his sister, Rosemary. Mm-hmm. And what he was really looking for was saying, and in some ways he was very much on target, of saying that, you know, the healthcare system really views Mary, Rosemary as a sum of parts and never as a whole person. And so you'd see the ears and the eyes and the nose and the throats and that sort of stuff. But nobody would ever take a look at Rosemary as a whole person. And so he developed an, a piece of legislation out of maternal and child health that established what we call interdisciplinary training programs. And it was really a group of programs that would train people from all different types of disciplines to work collectively around a single set of issues for a child or an adult with a disability and really plan for them in a thoughtful way. And so that was the first sort of thrust at looking at interdisciplinary training and building a system that would support the whole person and the family as opposed to an organ or a single system. Uh, and that goes way back to 1967. And so I actually joined the, not I didn't join the ICI then, but uh, I joined it actually in 72. So I've been in, in the system for a while. And our center has about 200 on the staff. We do a lot of uh, work for the government under grants and contracts. Uh, and the areas that we've, we've spent more time in are the areas of uh, employment, and the areas of post-secondary opportunities for students with both intellectual disabilities or students with significant disabilities who normally would not go to a post-secondary setting, which is a community college or a college. So we really looked at that as a chance to engage these folks in different types of learning environments. So my position as the director is really to try and orchestrate these programs to support some innovation. We have early childhood programs, and we actually have programs in dealing with seniors, um, and currently we have now projects in all 50 states and now seven countries that are looking at the same issue of we have a very simple mission that talks about we think that people with disabilities ought to have the same opportunities as everybody else. Well, let me ask you this now. You, how, how are you tied into the university? Then? Are you part of the university? Well, that's the second job. That's and the second are, job. We are part of the university, although our university, oh, about three years ago, uh, came to us and said that they would really like, for, for, in this case, me to head up a committee that would look at what the university's footprint would be internationally. And so we began to look at that issue, and after, as, as you'll know, to most universities, and sometimes we move somewhat slowly, but we moved along in a progress of trying to see, first of all, what all 67 universities in the United States and Canada were doing in other countries. And what we found was that most of them were dealing with health and public health-related areas, and we were trying to figure out what's the University of Massachusetts, Boston's position, or what would they do if they did things internationally. And the thing that we came up with was really looking at the at, at the issues of uh, wellness and wellness broadly defined as things like in your life space you have a job, you have a place to live, you have friends and relationships. That all, from a sociology standpoint, that constitutes what makes you happy and well. And so we looked at what are the issues of wellness and then economic and social development. 
and economic was obviously one of the very common threads. Unfortunately, for persons, many persons with disabilities, it was poverty. They're poor. They have very little income, and as you can see, the numbers of persons who are living below the poverty level of persons with disabilities is almost threefold what the population is without disabilities. And then the second one is social development, which really is the issues of inclusion. And so the school that we set up was a school for global inclusion and social development, and it really is a program that looks at wellness, economic, and social development, and it prepares people through the master's and doctoral program to work with communities and populations that are served by NGOs, not-for-profit organizations, and look at the issues of including these groups that are excluded for whatever reason. And so the, the university established a new school, and I serve now as the dean of this new school. The school is broader than the disability. It really looks at the major issues of why populations might get excluded because of religion, because of wealth, because of sexual preference, because of culture, whatever it is. This is a zillion different reasons why, of how can we address that issue and get people to be more inclusive and engaged in the community. So the school is really building up some of the things we learned around how to include persons with disabilities in typical community settings. So I serve now as the dean of this new school, which was opened about a year ago, and we have our first students in the master's and doctoral program who are coming in. They will wind up working in running NGOs, non-governmental organizations. They're doing research at the state or federal level in private or public sector. Um, so my role is twofold. One is that I continue to, to direct the Institute for Community Inclusion, which is within the school, and the second is I'm serving as the dean of this new school. You are a busy man. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> well, and thank you, you know, for everything you're doing. You talked about poverty, which obviously is an extreme barrier for people with disabilities. I remember Marka Bristow used to say, disability and poverty go hand in hand. But in addition to that, your opinion, what do you see as the area in social inclusion that becomes the biggest barrier for people with disabilities? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question. And, and in thinking it through, I think there's some issues that would be no surprise to the, the, the folks who are listening on the radio and probably no surprise to you. And I think the first one is the fact that there's not a good sense of expectation that persons with disabilities can do. And so there's a tendency to underestimate in, in if folks remember the time, in, if you took in, in the university setting, you took Psychology 101, you always came across this study that talked about, uh, it's referred to as Pygmalion in the classroom, it talks about the teacher is told that the students on the right are brighter than the students on the left. And lo and behold, the students on the right do better. But the reality is there's no difference. But they're told that the students can do better. And so they wind up doing better because the teacher responds to them in a different way. And so I think sometimes we're told that people with disabilities can't do or there's something to be feared or what have you. And so what you get is, is a lack of expectation um, of the general public about persons with disabilities. I think that goes with another issue, which is a lack of opportunity for persons with disabilities. And so if you looked at um, when a student, when a person with a disability leaves school and goes into adult life, depending on the nature of their disability, but a lot of times if they have an early age onset disability like a developmental disability, 
the options are to work in a sheltered workshop or go to a day program or do something like that rather than to go out and try a job. And so we don't expect that people will, will do that well, and so therefore they wind up, in fact, not doing that well. So the second piece, is, I think, is, is that issue of lack of opportunity. And I th- think the third one is really a response that people have learned over time, and that's people with disabilities oftentimes don't become risk takers. Um, the, the issue of the fear of loss of benefits, of loss of payments, of loss of security, of loss of program, leads one not to take risks or to try something that's different. Uh, and so the, the confluence of poor expectations, limited opportunities, and really an absence or fear of taking risks winds up complicating or really making uh, the life of persons with disabilities what they often might seek out is or be pushed into is a safe and secure environment as opposed to the typical environment that we would see with adults. Um, That's changing, by the way. I I paint that scenario for you, but it's changing. And one of the things that's changing and is very exciting, is, and I think it's a reflection of inclusive education for persons with disabilities or students, is that in a national longitudinal study, a survey that was done by the government that is really representative of the population, Fully 90% of the students with disabilities who are getting ready to transition or leave school expected in their adult life they would go to work. Now, I can mm. tell you the unfortunate part is that depending on the disability, the, the labor force participation rate for people with disabilities is anywhere between 22 and 37%. Mm-hmm. So we've got, you know, when I put those two figures together and I say, hmm, there's something in here that looks like it's an unfulfilled promise. Mhm. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. A lot of our callers sent in the question of inclusion of students with intellectual disabilities and becoming employees. You know, what is your view on that? Do, do you think that's possible? And of course, we're excluding sheltered workshops when we ask you that question. Right. I think the issue of, of employment, I'll go back and you'll hear a common thread through the entire time that we talk, is really I think the expectation issue is a very, very important issue. And I think it's incumbent on us to expect with persons with disabilities, regardless of the nature of the disability, will achieve. We should be giving them the opportunity to achieve. We should expect that they'll achieve. We should expect that, in fact, in our country, as opposed to some other countries, but certainly in our country, the gold standard in the adult community is you have a place to work. Um, you know, your job gives you, frankly, the answer to the second question that any new person who meets you says. And the first question is, what's your name? And the second one is, what do you do? And so that's really a badge of membership in a community. And so I think that, that we should expect and take on as an assumption that yes, in fact, all persons with disabilities should be given the opportunity to work. That doesn't say they'll all work. It says that we should presume that they should be have the opportunity and we should support that opportunity. Now, that said, if I went back and I took a look at some data, which your, your audience, I'm sure, is familiar with, we're all familiar with the, the uh, statement of what the current unemployment rate is. It's 7%, it's 8%, it's 6%, or whatever it is in your state. Well, the reality is that doesn't tell you anything. It's not a very useful statistic. 
What's much more important is to take a look at the percentage of persons between 18 and 64 who are working. And that is what's called the labor force participation rate. And in the general population of persons without disabilities, that runs around 70-72%. So if you think about it, and then we're going to ask you quickly to do your math, if you think about it, that means that 28% of the population between the ages of 18 and 64 aren't working. That's people without disabilities. Would you repeat that? 28% of the population of people without disabilities between 18 and 64 aren't in the workforce. They might be in school. They might be at home. They, they, might, be, um, they might have hit the lottery. Who knows? But they're not engaged in the workforce. And I think if we believe strongly which I do, if we believe strongly that people with disabilities and without disabilities ought to have the same opportunities, then my target goal is to see the labor force participation rate for people with disabilities to be the same as the labor force participation rate for people without disabilities. Now, that doesn't say that everybody with a disability has to work. It says that we presume that they can work, we work towards that, and the reality is not everybody will, will engage in work but a lot more than currently do should be able to go to work. Right. And, you know, when you talk about this, you have to focus on the big picture. Right. Yes, there are people with disabilities, um, whatever it is, intellectual, whatever, that may not be able to work, but there are people without disabilities that are not able to work due to lack of education or, you know, whatever the situation may be. So all I'm saying is, though, focus on the big picture. That's right. Focus on the big picture. So, Bill, your major program right now, is that what it is? Is it employment? We, much of the activity that we get engaged in with the ICI is employment. We also have a program that is, is working now in, in uh 27 institutions of higher education and universities around um, transition and what's called post-secondary education. And so we have a webpage that is entitled thinkcollege.net. Hmm, thinkcollege.net, I love that. Right, and if you go on it, there will be a list of community colleges and colleges that offer educational experiences for students with intellectual disabilities on the campus. And so what we're interested in doing is looking at what I refer to as, um, for those of you who are basketball fans, everybody knows what the Final Four is. Uh, for those of you who have uh, transition and a disability, the Final Four is the years 18 to 22, where you're mm. eligible for services. And, you know, the reality is that, unfortunately, in most school districts, if a student doesn't pass a curriculum at age 18, they're entitled to stay in school, but oftentimes the school doesn't change the curriculum because it's a smaller number of students. And so what you're entitled to, frankly, if you failed at 18, you're entitled to three more years of failure, which is really a problematic. And so we've been looking at the issue of, well, maybe it's the environment that's wrong. And maybe what we need to do is change the environment and have these students attending a two- or four-year school, not that they'll be able to matriculate, because some of them will not have the academic ability, and that's fine. But they'll be able to participate, and they'll be able to take one or two classes, get a sense of what the experience is, but the real experience 
occurs in the bookstore, in the cafeteria, in the sporting events, with a conversation at that level in the community, the two and the four-year university or college settings is really very different than it was in high school. It's really around careers and work and choices, and it's a very maturing thing, and students really respond very positively to that. We actually have some initial data on about 900 students who participated in those, these types of settings that is clearly showing that these students are much more likely to go into employment than students who don't go through this type of experience. Wow. That is awesome. So it's great. Co- college.net. Yep, thinkcollege.net. And, and, you know, it's just it's, it's using the natural resources that exist in a way to support students with intellectual disabilities. And the first question you'll get always from a, from a, a person who might be working as an instructor or a faculty member, oh, well, these people can't do the curriculum. Well, you know... We're not asking the faculty to change the curriculum. What we're really asking them is to change the way they deliver it. And so just like in universal design for learning, where the assumption is that every child can learn, we do that same phenomenon at the the college level or the community college level. Every student can learn. The failure is how we deliver the information often, not that the person can't learn. So it's the curricula, the models, and the styles of delivering information that we really need to adjust and adapt to. Well, I I think that's awesome. I agree with you. Being in a different setting just has such an impact. And, Bill, I want to say that um, I've always thought you were really a great leader, but I had the privilege of seeing you recognized by AUCD. Uh How about if you, and and I was very proud to see that, how about if you tell our listeners about AUCD? Well, AUCD is the Association of University Centers and Disabilities, and and as I said in the beginning of, of our conversation, there's one you said in every state, and so there people who are working in an interdisciplinary setting on behalf of persons with disabilities over the lifespan. And so these are my peers or colleagues. And so AUCD works as, as really a pretty strong national network in support of, um, like the post-secondary education, employment, early education, school inclusion, adult services, um, and the award you're mentioning is, is that each year they, they have a Distinguished uh, Achievement Award, which uh, is given out to one or two people. And this year there were a colleague of mine who works in Hawaii and myself were honored by that. And it's, it's a little bit like, um, well, I'm not big on these, but uh, the Emmys are something, it's, it's the group of your peers who vote for you. So it's, uh, they can be pretty critical and pretty uh, insightful on whether you've really made a substantive contribution or not. And so when your peers recognize that, that's, that's a pretty special and humbling thing to go through. So I felt uh, very moved by it, frankly. Um, I also think, though, that we still have such a long way to go that I would really love to see lots of people get stoked up and energized about it. My passion mostly is about employment issues because I think it's such an important, it's the pathway out of poverty and it's the pathway into friendships in many instances. I think that's really important. And we've got to continue to develop better research on 
how, in fact, we can help people get into jobs. And, Joyce, I know you have done a spectacular job at this. Um, I think that the other issue is that we are also not looking for persons to get into beginning-level, entry-level jobs all the time. There are some people who acquire a disability later on and have got lots of skills, and they should not go into entry-level positions. They should go to higher-level positions. We also should look on it as saying that if a person gets into a job, they shouldn't necessarily be expected to stay in that job. They should be able to advance and to move. And it's a little bit like the phenomena of for persons with disabilities, when they leave a job, we often refer to it as a failure. And with persons without disabilities, when they leave a job, we call it advancement. Yeah, that is, I mean, my background, as you know, is in executive search, yeah. and it is amazing how differently people look at that. Uh-huh. It really is. Because it, in information technology search, it is not unusual for a person to make a career change, and by the way, it's sometimes because they haven't moved up. Yeah. You know, it's it's just a different mindset, as you said, with a person with a disability. It's, oh, I wonder what went wrong. There must be a problem. Right. Um, and all of these things we have to work on together to change. Mm-hmm. So, Bill, you're very familiar with Section 503 of the Rehab Act that will be implemented March 31st of this month. What impact do you think that's going to have on the employment of people with disabilities? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I wish I had an accurate crystal ball, but let me pull up a crystal ball and see if I can give you a little bit of reflection on that. I think that it will do a couple of, first of all, I thought it was, it was terrific. I think the, uh, for some of your listeners, the 503 calls for employers to look at their workforce being represented by approximately 7% being persons with disabilities. And then also, not just at the entry level, but at all different tiers in the company. So there's a, there's a very subtle and, I think, very important differentiation between it's not just everybody working in entry-level positions like we had just talked, but it's at different levels throughout the company. But I think that um, I would have actually, I was uh, hoping that in lobbying for the idea that it would be 10%, but 7% is okay for starts. I think it will say to companies, listen, this is important. Um, that One of the, the standards that we have all the time is to say that if it's measured, it's important. And so now that we're measuring it, suddenly it's becoming more important to companies. And I think we'll find companies paying more attention to persons with disabilities in general. Now, one could say on the skeptical side, well, you know, they're just going to hunt for people who are in the company and they're going to ask people to disclose, and all, which is a possibility. And, you know, there may be more people with disabilities working in companies who don't disclose. I had a friend of mine who worked uh, at a major hospital in the Boston area, and, and at one point they asked about disclosure, and she said that she didn't have a disability. Well, she was in a wheelchair. And her reaction was, well, that doesn't impede me from doing my job here. It might impede me if I had lots of steps to go, but it doesn't. And so there's, there's some of that that goes around. But I think that the 503 regulations will call companies, call the attention of companies to the issues of persons with disabilities. Um, I think you'll get um, companies that will start to try and um, think differently about how they might engage employees uh, in the hiring of persons with disabilities, I can tell you we've gotten a couple of calls, one from a major company that said, okay, what do we do about this? 
and our first reaction is to say that, you know, if you're going to hire persons with disabilities, you've got to engage everybody in the company. You've got to make it part of the company fabric, and you really have to change some of the language that you use um, in, in recruiting and supporting persons with disabilities and make people welcome in the environment. And there's some very simple things that companies can do in that. And then the last piece that I think will happen is that because of the structure of that 7%, having different tiers in the companies, I think we might find companies beginning to look at different types of employment opportunities at different levels in the company. Will it happen tomorrow? I don't think so. I think it'll take a little while to go. And I think that the rule of thumb for us is really, frankly, one of getting behind this and supporting companies that really want to make the change rather than beating them over the head for noncompliance. I think that, that we'll, we'll get much better response from some companies that will, will be supportive. So I think, it was a, I think it was an excellent move on the part of the government. I think the companies have, some companies have some mixed feelings about it. But I think that in the longer term, will it make a huge difference in the jobs? I think we have to wait and see. I think if we sit back and think that the implementation of, of Section 503 at the end of March is going to automatically change behavior, it may, it may not. But I think we can help companies do things differently. Well, Bill, I have good news for you. Mm. I've, had, I've had companies call me that never called me before. That's superb. Mm-hmm. That is just superb. Many. Many. And although I agree with you about hitting people over the head, which I would never do that, sadly, if it weren't for 503, you know, this wouldn't be happening. I mean, we've had forever. This was written 40 years ago. Yep. So, And we've told companies forever that people with disabilities have great talent, will add to their bottom line. But I can tell you that in my career... It's usually me going to companies. I may have some great customers like Bayer, Highmark, Computer Sciences Corporation, um, WellPoint, you know, different companies I've worked with, the MGM. I could go on and on. But, but I will tell you, I've never had all these new companies call me. Yeah, and, and that's just, that's plain terrific. I think that's, that, and that's one of the outgrowths of, of, of an effort like this that, the companies begin to see that, you know, this is important. And they're going to reach out to folks like yourself and, and other organizations and say, what can we do? And if we can help them get to the point of saying, you know what, the 7% is, is a little bit like when we talk about access and technology. The 7% is not what you strive to reach. It's what you should really think about standing on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that some companies will do that. And I think there's also, certainly with the USBLN and the folks that I, mean, I know you know and you're active with, uh, the peer-to-peer types of, of networking uh, will, will certainly make a difference. And certainly the job accommodation network will make some differences. But I think nothing will make the difference more than folks like yourself who come from a business perspective and say to the companies, you know, it is doable. And frankly, it does make financial sense. Yes, I, I And, you know, I always say, um, like our friend Chris Griffin, when people would ask her, how the heck are we going to do this? I mean, what training? What do we have to do? She would say, hire someone. That's because right. when you hire people, other people, you know, all of a sudden they say, wow, 
Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, it's the same for people of color, for women. You know, you have you had to hire people so people would see it really is, as you said, a welcoming environment. Yeah. I have to tell you one of the stories of a lesson that I learned. And I give it a lot of talks to companies, and there was one point where I was talking about two, two to three hundred companies, and we were talking about accommodation, and I was talking, discussing it, and some fellow raised his hand in the audience, and he stood up and he said, excuse me, Dr. Kearney, and he says, we just can't do that. And I said to him, oh, I said, well, tell me, have you ever had anybody in your company's work for you who had a heart attack? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, what would you do? And he began to describe the most beautiful accommodation plan I had ever heard of. And then 30 seconds into it, he stopped and he said, I guess we do do it. And the, the aha moment for me in that one was I was using a word like accommodation that was like speaking Latin or Greek. And I should have really been talking in some much more functional business languages that this fellow would, would walk away with and say, you know, I got it. And so sometimes I think... We we make things a little bit more complicated than it should be. And apropos your comment and Chris Griffin's statement about just hire somebody, I mean, that's what you just got to do. And companies, I think, in a lot of times will do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I mean, and it's no pity. You know, you're doing the right thing, right. but it's also bottom line. I mean, I would never expect any company to hire people just to hire them. You know, with my background in executive search and coming out of the private sector, I know it's like anyone. If a company called me and said, we're looking for someone with these skills, I would send someone with those skills. And that's another thing that has to change, you know, in everyone's mind. It's not, let's send these resumes of people with disabilities, and why aren't you hiring them? Right. It's... Does this person fit the skill set you need? You're absolutely right. This is, and, and any of the charity cases of, oh, yeah, I hired, wind up being a nightmare for everybody. Yes, that's right. And it would, you know, it would, uh, if I sent someone because they're a friend of mine, but they did not have the skills, what would happen? they never hire another friend of mine. <laughs> I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah. And, you know, I'll never forget, I'm talking to a customer, and this customer said, look, we've been looking. This was actually a federal agency. We've been looking everywhere. We can't find anyone. We wanted to bring someone aboard. Uh, and, we, you know, so we were thinking in this one position, let's just hire someone. You know, whether or not they have the skill, let's just hire to get a person with a disability in there because of President Obama's executive order. And I said, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. Mm -hmm. You're going to cause such a negative reaction that people are going to say, is this what happens? Is this what happens? So, you know, I would say to any company listening to the show that I know, we know, that's not what we're looking for. That is not what people with disabilities are are looking for. Right. So, Bill, I'm going to skip down here because I know we don't have a lot of time, but I do want to ask you these last two questions. Um, It's obvious 
with the distinguished award and with what you've achieved in your leadership role that you have already accomplished so much in your life. But what would you consider your greatest accomplishment? You know, I think I think it would be probably whether it's 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 not a single accomplishment. I think it's the issue of keeping a focus on the employment opportunities for persons with disabilities as my main mission and passion and speaking on behalf of it all the time. That said, when I look at the data as to we see an increase in the numbers of persons with disabilities employed, I'm disappointed with that. I think we can do better. But I think what we need to constantly say is that, yes, persons with disabilities can do the job. When we have an effective match between the person and the job, regardless of whether they have a disability or not, we're going to have a happy relationship between the employer and the employee. And so I think really staying focused on the employment and really not backing away from it. I don't think we want to create pro- – I know, we I'm be firm about this, I know we don't want to create programs that don't encourage people to have an expectation, to dream a dream, or to be able to try out an employment opportunity. That doesn't say, though, that you all have to be successful. It just says you have to have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why Tony Quello always says, give us the right to be fired. You know <laughs> right. you know what he means. Equal. Yeah. Equal opportunity. Um, and you know, that is the only way that it will work. And I'm sure, Bill, that any of the companies you've spoken to, that would be their expectations. Right. You know, it, it is. And, and the countries that we're involved with are involved in several other countries out and, and actually some in the Middle East and, and some in India and, and some in Poland uh, and have been involved very heavily in Japan and China lately. And they're all the same. They're all saying the same thing. They're recognizing that um, persons with disabilities can make a contribution. They don't know where to go with it. Some of them are very further along than others. Some countries are just beginning to realize it. And what we're seeing happen is this emerging um, leadership among youth with disabilities who are really speaking up on behalf of, yes, I can, and yes, I want to, and yes, I'm going to but not an in-your-face necessarily, although sometimes that is important. But not in-your-face, but saying, you know, trust me, I can do it. Yes, and and since you brought that up, Bill, to any young people with disabilities listening to the show today who seem in their mind to be experienced one obstacle after another when they're trying to gain employment, what advice would you have for them? You know, that's, that's a tough one because there are moments where my somewhat militant side will come out and say, well, we'll go up and sue them. But that's not an answer necessarily. But I think sometimes there's obviously a disconnect between what the person really wants and what's available. And so we want to make sure that, in fact, what their, expect, their aspirations are are really jobs that exist in, in the, the labor market that they're hanging around, that they're living in, and the zip codes that they're living uh, but the other piece of it is is to say that um, actually I think some of the orientation towards employment has got to start in high school and earlier with students having the opportunity to do internships and field site experiences and all and getting a sense of what the labor market is really like. Is it tough to find the job? You know, they always say, and it's true, and I'm sure you've you've seen this many times, finding a job is a full-time job. It's a lot of work. 
Um, we're not using the technology as much as we can. There's some software technology that's out now that will identify for us the knowledge, skills, and abilities of 3.5 million jobs that are available in the U.S. by zip code. We've got to start using that to say to people, these are jobs, these are high growth, these are high demand jobs, these are jobs in the marketplace that exist that you can go for. And then our training programs really have to focus on saying, okay, here's what's in the labor market now, this is what we're going to prepare you for, we're going to give you the, the supports and the necessary skills in order to be marketable in those areas. <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of room for all of us to sort of join in so that the one individual who's finding it really difficult in getting a job, if they have no work history, sometimes they're going to have to really enter in as, as I don't know where you entered in the labor market but, market, but my entry into the labor market was as a dishwasher. I did a terrible job at it, but it was a dishwasher. So I started my work history there. So to some degree, you want to start your work history. The work history beginning as a dishwasher wasn't my career. It was my work history. It was the beginning of. So encouraging people to sort of take that opportunity. There's two or three places they can go to. Certainly, if they're um, a person who's served by the Volk Rehab Agency, if they're in a school or a uh, uh, high school or even a two-year or four-year college, in most of the, almost all of the two or four-year colleges, there are student disability services. Sometimes they're not hooked as carefully as they can be to the career and placement offices, but they're getting better at that. And then if, in fact, uh, the person has a one-stop or a, a job center that's near them, uh, there's one-stops. They're, unfortunately, they're called all kinds of different names, anything else, but they're run by the Department of Labor, and their intent is to really provide... Um, uh, an opportunity for any job seeker to find information about jobs. It doesn't happen automatically. We've got to provide some assistance in some instances, but there are some resources that are around. Well, and we've got to, I mean, I just think that's such a, you know, I think sometimes people just don't know. So we all have to get together and work together to make sure people do know. So, Bill, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, I think the two words that I would use that guide me and I think are most important is expectation and opportunity. I think we've got to expect that people will achieve and we've got to provide them with the opportunity to demonstrate they can. Expectation and opportunity. Wow. Doesn't that say it all? That is it. Well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. Well, Joyce, it's a real pleasure, and I so admire all the things that you do. And Chris Griffin is your biggest cheerleader in the in the Boston area, and I'm sure when you were in D.C., when you were working with her down there, it was terrific then, too. Yes, yeah, she is awesome. She, well, she's your cheerleader, too, so there you go. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Bill, on behalf of all people with disabilities. Thank you for fighting for employment uh, because that is what it's all about. So thank you so much. We end every show with a quote from someone impacting the lives of all of us, specifically people with disabilities. So today that quote is, work gives us dignity. Work gives us dignity, says it all. And it is said by former Congressman Tony Quello. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters 
at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.